My name is Shredda and this is The Leitner Side of Things, Practitioner Perspectives in School Psychology, a place for school psychology practitioners to come together and share experiences and insights about their work. Today I'm talking with Mike Lewis. Hi, Mike. Hi. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, We're going to talk a lot about the board certified behavior analyst credential today, but tell us a little bit about your training um, in school psychology. Sure. Um, So I'm I'm originally from Pennsylvania and uh, attended Penn State uh, University for undergraduate. Um, And I came down to uh, Delaware to attend University of Delaware's program and uh, got the uh, EDS uh, certificate through UD's program. I uh, interned at a district in central Delaware um, where I was working with a lot of students with uh, autism and uh, continued my professional practice at like this specialized um, setting um, that was 100% um, IEP students. um, So not an inclusive setting. It would have been like that separate school setting. And my interactions with students more and more led me to believe that I didn't have the full training package that I really needed to address the needs of um, some more of these really unique learners with uh, significant um, interfering behavioral issues. And so I had gone back to uh, Penn State's web campus uh, to uh, pursue the uh, BCBA certificate. And that was like a year long uh, program of, um, it's, it's a nice flexible uh, program. Uh, a lot of it is self-guided, uh, pre-recorded lectures that you go through and uh, quizzes and assignments that need to be done in a certain uh, timeline, but it's really up to you when you do those. Um, so I completed that and uh, sat for my exam and, and uh, became a board certified behavior analyst. And I found that that training really uh, helped to sharpen up some of the behavioral training that I'd received uh, from the University of Delaware. Um, what the training I got there, I thought was really sufficient, I think for like day to day, uh, practice, um, you know, the typical mm-hmm. difficult kid problems, those, those nudgy kids that just, that won't sit down in their seat or, you know, won't stop talking back to the teacher and the students that I was working with demonstrated behaviors, like really significant self injurious behavior, um, where they might be. Uh, banging their heads against uh, a concrete wall to the point of causing, uh, you know, bleeding or unconsciousness. Um, significant aggressive behaviors towards other students and staff members and, and behaviors like PICA. And, and so I found myself at a loss of, you know, what to do uh, to help these really uh, significant learners and, um, and, and felt that that BCBA credential sort of expanded on what I had already experienced that, uh, UD's program, um, but but obviously like in a much sharper direction, um, and and one specifically you know tailored for um, students with autism. But you know we're seeing ABA become a little bit more expanded to just any significant behavioral problem. And for those that don't know, can you just explain what the board certified behavior analyst credential is? Yeah, so the the certification process um, has oversight by the um, the Behavior Analyst Certification Board, the BACB, and their 
requirements are really um, rigorous and intense. And I think that uh, is, is uh, sort of a, an ethical um, basis um, that the, the populations that most BCBAs work with are, are really high stakes. And because of those examples I gave of really significant behaviors, um, trying to intervene on them um, uh, is a really difficult and also uh, potentially dangerous sort of process. Um, so the, the certification process involves not only this coursework, but then um, 1,500 hours of supervised field work. Um, and it's not like you're, you're supervising BCBA is right over your shoulder for those uh, full 1,500 hours, but it's certainly a lengthy mm -hmm. process that um, also requires <clears throat> a lot of individual, you know, kind of face-to-face um, or I guess in these days, you know, um, telehealth sort of, uh, um, uh, sessions to, to talk about, you know, case management and, um, to talk about, uh, performance feedback for the credential seeker. Um, and, and then there's an exam, uh, that that's, uh, something of a hellscape nightmare. <laughs> it's just 240 ish, uh, multiple choice questions. And uh, none of the multiple choice answers seem to be the right answer. So it's all just, here's a couple of terrible scenarios, which one is the least terrible. Um, so the, the exam is, is pretty difficult and it's not unusual for credential seekers to, uh, to attempt a, the exam multiple times before they, they reach a passing score. Um, so it's, it's set up to be intentionally difficult, I think. Um, to keep the scientific rigor um, in the community to a certain standard. Um, but again, ethically, it, I think that it has to be for uh, the severity of, uh, of behaviors that you know, these credential seekers are gonna be um, working with and, and hoping to reduce and, and replace with other more uh, functional behaviors. Yeah, I was curious in this topic because it seems like there's a trend with districts where they're hiring more school psychologists who also have a BCBA credential or they're mm -hmm. hiring um, just, you know, straight up BCBAs. And I, I don't have any data to back that up, but <laughs> my impression <laughs> is that an increasing trend. Um, yeah, I, I don't have the data so either, um, but I definitely agree. It does seem to be uh, going that way. Yeah. Do you feel like your role as a school psychologist in your current setting with a BCBA is different than the role of other school psychologists? So I, I would think that it definitely was for sure when I was um, practicing in Central Delaware at this um, specialized school setting. And uh, now I'm currently practicing in Southern Delaware in a much more traditional role of a middle school psychologist. So um, <laughs> I feel like my credential is is almost a total wash at this point. Um, but my role um, at that separate school setting, I think was a lot different. Um, as far as uh, evaluations go, I think that maybe I did uh, 20 to 25 evaluations a year. Um, and a lot of those were, were re-evaluations. Um, a good number of those evaluations were um, autism evaluations that included you know, the, the, the ADOS, the autism diagnostic mm -hmm. observation schedule. Um, uh, but a lot of the day-to-day -day practice was, was really behavior management. Um, and a lot of it, the bulk of it, wasn't even directly with students. It was working with uh, staff members. So it was developing plans, 
<clears throat> and training staff members on the behavior plans and um, coming up with um, self-assessment checklists and fidelity checklists and observing staff implementing the plan and, um, you know, gathering classroom-based uh, data on the student behavior and, and looking at trends in behavior to see if uh, the treatment plan has been effective or not. So uh, the role in that in that specific setting was, uh, I think, very different from the traditional school psychologist role. Um, I, I didn't do any uh, mental health counseling um, for, you know, the seven, eight years that I was there. Um, and it was almost entirely um, behavioral consultation with staff. So, uh, you know, in my experience with University of Delaware's program um, takes um, a great slant towards um, a consultation um, as a practice skill. And, um, and I think that went a long way just as far as working with other adult um, professionals uh, to affect the positive change for students. Um, but, I, but I felt like I needed more uh, behavioral exper expertise to really affect the sort of change that we needed for a lot of our students. Um, so the role was, was really different. And, uh, and now, um, in a, I, I serve two middle schools um, for about 13 or 1400 students. Um, and I, there isn't any time for me to do anything that's not an evaluation. <laughs> so so I, I have my BCBA certificate just kind of on a shelf for now as I just uh, kind of churn through um, record reviews and, you know, those uh, the super funny SRs. Right. Yeah, it's interesting that there is a distinction between the settings in which you work. And I would argue that even for, you know, just school psychologists or even counselors, their roles can shift and change depending on the setting that they're in and the expectations and needs of those students and that staff. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of it comes down to um, how the local administration understand the role and, and, and what our capabilities are. And yeah, you know, I, I think that um, the folks that I'm working with now um, kind of understand the role as, as being a test in place um, sort of professional where, um, you know, I, I really could be and want to be doing more with, um, you know, groups of students to do, um, you know, skill work, you know, social skill work and, uh, using uh, games or, and, and interactive games or, or tabletop games as a platform for building um, social skills and um, you know, self-esteem and those sorts of things and um, trying to, to take a more preventative approach to a lot of um, middle school specific issues. But, um, but I, I think that the, the long history of professionals that preceded me um, we're mostly, you know, involved in uh, the identification of students in need of uh, special education services. So, you know, the, the behavior management is kind of traditionally left to other professionals in the building. And it's not like they're not great people. Um, but, you know, a lot of the times it's a, it's a paraprofessional who, you know, uh, has a reputation for like a tough love approach, um, you know, which is which has good social validity. <laughs> but um <laughs> Um, but maybe not uh, always the most effective uh, treatment for um, for a wide range of students, and um, uh, and I don't think that they even know uh, to ask, you know, uh, to bring me in on on behavioral concerns or um, looking at things even systematically, you know, or system wide. Um, the the 
PBS as it exists uh, to whatever degree in middle school is, is sort of left to um, the guidance counselors traditionally where I work, um, which is great, you know, um, but again, that's, that's an aspect of my training that's just, um, you know, otherwise sort of wasted if I'm not uh, involved in, in any of those discussions. And, and part of it's because there isn't that expectation or the understanding of my position to be able to do those sorts of things. And the other part of it is, um, as a, as a new parent, I'm hesitant to, uh, <laughs> to stick my neck out there to take mm -hmm. on more work maybe than, um, than what I can handle. But, um, but yeah, a lot of it's, I, I think a combination of, uh, how do the, the, uh, local administrators who, you know, have been there for a while understand the role and, um, how strongly do we advocate for our ability to do more than just, you know, write reports. It also sounds like just the demand is greater than the resources available. You said you have a heavy testing load and that probably takes up the majority of your time. Yeah, with, with 1,400 kids, it's, there isn't really time to, uh, to do much of anything else, um, which is unfortunate, right? Because then you're either uh, testing or observing for an ESR, or writing the ESR, or um, being called in to, to put out some sort of uh, major behavioral fire that um, that could be uh, prevented if there's time to get those sort of systems in place, you know? So, um, yeah. and, and then anymore, like, I, I don't think that I'm even called in to deal with the behavioral stuff anymore. Um, you know, to me, which is, which is a shame that, you know, the BCBA and in, in <laughs> these two buildings is, um, isn't thought of when there's, you know, behavioral, uh, problems and recurring behavioral problems in the building. Yeah, that's interesting, because one of the things I wanted to talk about with you was, you know, the fact that school psychologists do tend to pride themselves on being trained um, in all different areas and those different domains of the mass practice model, and being able to provide services that do take a kind of larger picture, more holistic approach. Um, and in that, school psychologists are also trying, attempting to move out of this test in place perception of what we're capable of. It seems like your role has is primarily testing right now, but in general, when you kind of think about the larger picture, do you feel like with the trend of school districts hiring BCBAs more and more, do you feel that it's pushing other school psychologists further into that test in place role? Um. I think it, I think it depends. And I think that, um, our kind of test in place role is created because there's, um, there's legislation, um, and, and policies and, and laws and regulations that say that that is our role. Right. And, mm -hmm. um, if there's nothing else that a school psychologist does other than, um, uh, maintain compliance with eligibility, then that's all that we need to do because by law, that's all that we're required to do. Um, and I think the way that I looked at it as I was, I was trying to get ahead of um, some things that were going to start to be required by law, like um, that behavior problems be addressed um, through the process of a functional, a functional behavior assessment and that that FBA be carried out in a behavior analytic way. And that, you know, the people, carrying out that process be uh, trained in those um, in those processes. So I, I don't know, I, I think that once there is more 
regulation uh, behind it, then I think that um, school administrators are going to be put in a position to to have to use us to the fullest ability that we have uh, and the training that we have. But when it's only required that we, um, you know, test in place, then uh, I don't think that they, they feel a great rush to, to do anything else with us. Um, I think that when we're seeing districts seeing a value in the BCBAs is that it's a really specialized role and that maybe um, some BCBAs are a little bit better at the behavioral stuff than, than maybe the general school psychologist. And it's because that's the only thing that they do is um, behavioral management. And mm -hmm. um, I think that from a business perspective, I guess, uh, I guess an administrator can see a value in that or a district office can see a value in just siloing off those responsibilities. Like the, the BCBA can take care of the behavioral stuff. And I just need the psych to do the, the IDEA compliance stuff because that's the stuff that really gets us um, uh, slammed with litigation as if we're out of compliance. Right. So I, I can see right. why they would want to silo those off. And in some circumstances it would make sense. Right. So having um, a certificate, in both lands, as it were, like working with really significant behaviors, there's a value to having um, someone who is trained and well-versed in um, behavior analysis um, and, and using principles of behavior analysis when, when working with those individuals. But um, it, that doesn't necessarily have to not be a school psychologist. Like I will always tell people you get more bang for your buck by hiring a school psychologist than a BCBA such that the, you know as any psychologist can can receive additional training to get a little bit sharper in their fba and behavior support plans um you can't ever get a, a bcba to be credentialed to uh to test um for special education um to make those evaluations to do mental health counseling to do you know all those kind of systems wide things that we do or are capable of doing um so as long as you know, the, the state and federal regulations don't force us into those positions. I think that administrators are um, very complacent with having us just do, you know, the things that are <laughs> legally required that we do, unfortunately. Yeah, that's a really good point. I can't um, recall school psychologists that words being in the language for, you know, laws around FBAs and behavior plans. Right. Um, but they are, those words are in there surrounding testing and special education. Right. Yeah. And that's, and I think that's what's um, kind of unfortunate is that we're uh, typecast almost by the legislation to do that one, one thing and that one thing only. Um, so, and, and I think that as far as the availability of BCBAs, a lot of them can contract themselves out. So they seem a little bit more available maybe than some school psychologists. Um, and, and I think that it's really, um, it comes down to like a battle of advocacy. Um, I think that um, sort of like the, the recent rise in, in incidents and prevalence of students with autism has kind of necessitated that um, uh, the need for ABA style treatments and interventions. And, uh, and therefore, you know, the BCBAs 
have been advocating very strongly that you know this is the the, the type of treatment that is effective for these uh, types of learners, and then also others, right? So students with mm-hmm. um, what we can conceptualize as executive functioning difficulties, um, students with uh, emotional disabilities. Um, you know, ABA is really uh, an effective intervention for um, for a wide uh, a wide array of of, of uh, learners. Um, and they've advocated very strongly for that. And I, I think that if we're being kind of pushed away from uh, the behavioral aspect of our job, I think it's maybe we're not advocating enough that, yeah, we can do the same sorts of things. And maybe we don't have the, the same fancy language for these sorts of things, um, but we're still capable of doing it. Um, and I can, I can tell you a big reason that I pursued the BCBA certificate was because I, I kind of felt pressure from a, a state body that um, I didn't know enough as a school psychologist and that, um, you know, a BCBA would be far superior in, in working with students with autism. So when I was at this um, specialized setting, there was a, an overseeing um, group of individuals created um, by the Department of, uh, of Education um, called the Peer Review Committee. And, um, and it's a hard process. The peer review committee would uh, basically kind of oversee um, the day-to-day learning experiences of students who can't, you know, accurately report on their day-to-day experiences. Um, so it would be typically students that, you know, might have a history of physical restraints or students that are um, in the day before seclusion was, you know, illegal, <laughs> students that, that had seclusion as part of a treatment uh, package. And um, it was a good intention to body to make sure that um, school personnel were doing right by um, these really unique learners and, and not, you know, um, inadvertently harming them. Um, but my feeling as a school psychologist as being sort of the case manager for these students and being the one implementing um, and, and devising these treatment plans, um, I was made to feel really professionally inadequate because I was a school psychologist and that I wasn't a BCBA. Um, and, and so, you know, the school that I was working for did a lot of training for the school psychologists that were there. I was one of uh, four and then five and then six school psychologists. And we all received uh, training from um, BCBA uh, consultants. Um, and then at some point district office just says, you know, why do, why hire the BCBAs to consult and train the school psychs when we can just, you know, hire the BCBAs <laughs> to do the work? Because uh, as I mentioned, like, you know, I wasn't doing a ton of evaluations and um, the evals for our students um, are things that any school psychologist really can do. And I think that ended up being the shift um, after I left that school in that district was, um School psychologists from other buildings would do the evaluations for the students that are in the separate school setting. And um, BCBAs that were either hired full-time or on a contract would do the day-to-day case management of those students to help them uh, communicate better and uh, to help reduce um, interfering and and potentially dangerous behaviors. Uh, And so I think that as a acute example really pushed the school psychologist out of behavior management and more into the test and place um, traditional role. Um, and again, because of um, a Department of Ed legislative body that said maybe this isn't 
the role for you guys, you know, um, mm -hmm. the significant behaviors are something that really a BC, uh, BCBA should handle. And that's, that's not something that I, that I fully agree with. Um, even today, I, I think with, um, maybe the proper training, I think any school psychologist really can get there, um, without having to go through the whole process of getting the BCBA certificate. It's certainly nice to have. And I think that it makes it, um, a school psych, uh, a more attractive applicant if the school district knows the value of a BCBA <laughs> and, and doesn't give them, you know, 1400 middle schoolers to, to, <laughs> to manage. But, um, uh, but, but I don't think that a BCBA necessarily should replace um, a school psychologist in any instance. I, th I think that it's helpful to have some consultation on the more significant cases, but, um, uh, but, I, but I think any, any district would be making a mistake to hire a BCBA over a school psychologist if they're given, um, if they're given both options. It seems to me that that might be important feedback for training programs, for graduate programs, about how they are training their students and what classes they are emphasizing. Um, do you think they're, they could benefit from increasing behavioral training? Yeah, I think so. And I, and I think it, it depends on, you know, the model that they're using. Um, I, I feel like University of Delaware's program um, was very close um, to what uh, that I had experienced going through my um, BCBA program. Um, there's certainly a different language in applied behavior analysis. Um, the concepts are very similar um, to what I have learned. Um, and then specifically, um, UD's uh, slant towards um, behavioral consultation as a model, I thought was was really really helpful. Um, I think that the more the programs can use and adapt um, behavior analytic principles and uh, and technologies, I think the better off that we're going to be. Um, I I don't see um, applied behavior analysis as as a practice and intervention going anywhere. Um, especially when it's uh, advocated so strongly by, you know, just the centuries of uh, a body of research and affecting really positive outcomes for um, individuals with autism um, and other de uh, developmental disabilities. Um, so I, I think that is, you know, the current trend of what, you know, uh, is covered uh, under medical insurances, you know, ABA treatment um, interventions. And I think that the more we can do to align our training to that, I think is gonna make us um, better prepared so that if a school psychologist leaves a training program, an ASP accredited training program and, and sits down in front of um, a governing body like a peer review committee, <laughs> um, maybe they won't feel um, so professionally inept as I did um, because they'll have uh, a more uh, solid um, foundational knowledge of, of ABA principles and technologies and um, be able to apply that, um, you know, to their, to their students. Interesting. So, and you do have this expertise in applied behavior analysis. How do you think having that expertise, that additional expertise, has changed your perspective as a school psychologist, regardless of kind of what you're doing in your practice currently, even mm -hmm. if it is um, primarily testing or consultation? Um, well, I, I think that um, 
a big part of the BCBA credential um, is its strength in uh, its ethics and its um, ethical requirements. And a lot of that, um, what is the, the BACB's ethical guidelines goes hand in hand with NASP's. Um, and in some instances even goes further than, uh, than what NASP's uh, guidelines uh, do. Um, but, I, but I think that it helps make me a really ethical um, practitioner when I think about um, student voice and choice in, um, in their day-to-day -day experiences. And, um, you know, it, it makes me reflect back on my prior experiences working with students with autism who, who couldn't communicate functionally. And um, we would try to, to do an intervention to, uh, like, get them to, to do more work. And when I think about it, you know, we were really doing um, sort of a compliance training rather than really reinforcing any sort of positive behavior because there was a lot of behavioral resistance to um, getting the students to do work that after I had received my credential, I thought that was really the wrong thing to do because the, the, the student, the client is clearly communicating that they do not consent to this intervention and uh, they don't want to be a part of it. And, you know, before I had the credential, we, we moved ahead with the intervention anyway. Um, so I, it, it has me thinking a lot more about um, the individual student um, advocacy and their, um, their agency and, and what happens to them on a day-to-day -day basis. So um, I, I guess my, my current coworkers have told me that I, that I have done more in the past year um, that I'm relatively new in my position as a, as a middle school school psych um, to involve the students in their IEP programming, like checking in with them to, to make sure that when the students do attend their IEP meetings, like they actually understand what it is we're talking about. Do they think it's important for them to work on math problem solving. <laughs> Do they think that's a need of theirs that needs to be addressed? Um, and uh, I, I guess historically, that's, that's not something that the students have had the opportunity to do. And, um, and it doesn't seem, you know, ethical to, to um, create this intervention package uh, that is an IEP for a middle school student that, you know, doesn't really consent to um, the, the, the uh, program in its entirety. So um, that, that's probably the greatest effect on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, and then on top of that, it, it's just thinking through things in that compartmentalized behavior analytic way. Um, right. My, my uh, esteemed colleague that I've <laughs> referred you to, uh, Ryan Palmer, will sometimes uh, jokingly refer to me as a robot um, because <laughs> if he's maybe the resident trauma expert, um, I, I find more comfort in focusing on, on just those behavior analytic, you know, those little building blocks of a behavior. Um, and it's not to negate that that trauma is real and that it exists because it, you know, it has a quantifiable um, effect on behavior. But, um, but I think I, just as a day-to-day -day basis, I, I think about how my interactions with students might reinforce certain behaviors and how my interactions with staff might reinforce uh, certain staff behaviors. Um, it, so it's just kind of like that ongoing, very nerdy, very, yeah, robot sort of process is <laughs> to like, um, is, is what I'm doing affecting the sort of change that I want or am I, you know, inadvertently screwing things up <laughs> and steering things in the wrong direction? Which I think all school psychologists um, go through that. 
Yeah, I think that uh, yeah, we all start carrying around bags of snacks with us now too, right? So we all sit right. down at a meeting with the school psych and here's a bunch of candy for everybody, you know, positive pairing. <laughs> We're having a national conversation right now about race and anti-racism and, you know, our students have arguably just gone through or still going through two different ACEs. How do you feel your perspective as a professional or your approach to practice may have shifted given these um, you know, two huge events? And also I'm thinking about trauma and BCBA credential. And I feel like some of the criticism with the credential has been that it doesn't quite cover trauma and understanding of trauma and how to treat trauma. Is that something uh, you feel is accurate? Do you agree with that? Um, so, I mean, there's a couple of things to unpack there. And I think that, that first, um, uh, to address like the, or the BCBAs and that credential uh, sensitive to, uh, trauma and its, and its impact on students. Um, and I think that a good BCBA practitioner would absolutely agree that, that trauma is real and has a very, uh, real and significant impact on, uh, on, a, on a student's functioning. Um, I think it, it behavior analytically, we might conceptualize it a little differently. So it, to get into like the nerdy talk of it, um, trauma, ACEs, uh, these sorts of things can be in behavior analysis sort of conceptualized as um, what we call um, motivational, uh, motivational operations. Mm-hmm. Um, and what that means is that these things have a value altering effect on the reinforcement of certain stimuli. And probably the easiest example um, is uh, thirst as being uh, a motivational operation. So uh, thinking about uh, a glass of water as a stimulus and what sort of reinforcing value it has to somebody who has a level of thirst. If you're, it's a marathon runner at the end of the race, um, that person's going to do literally anything to get to that um, bottle of water to to hydrate themselves. And um, so, you know, those behaviors associated with seeking out that water become really, really uh, more likely um, because the value of water is much, much higher. Um, and it's it's sort of a silly example, but the current world state <laughs> as hard as it is to cope with as an adult, <laughs> I can't imagine how difficult it is to cope as, um, as a teenager or as a young adolescent. And um, what that tells me is that there's going to be potentially a higher value in students feeling connected, which is very not behavioral analytical, but um, if, if my fellow BCBAs can take this ride with me for a second. Um, <laughs> the value of, of positive attention from peers or trusted and, and respected adults, I, I think um, is, is probably gonna skyrocket. And, and I think there's gonna be a lot of different behaviors that, that we're gonna see in the coming school year um, from students who are attempting to, to gain that, to gain that connectedness. Um, either to family members who might not be at school um, or to siblings or um, to their friends at school. And, and so it, 
I think, I think it's going to be <laughs> an incredibly difficult time for our students, uh, more so than I think uh, even, for, even for staff members um, that are coming back to school in the midst of the pandemic, uh, in the midst of, um, you know, the, the, the idea of, of racism and being an anti-racist in America and um, the difficulties with can you trust what your parents are telling you about the world events? Um, can your parents trust what they're seeing in media outlets <laughs> as to, you know, like what is fair and accurate coverage as to what's going on? Um, so I, I think the the need for um, that unconditional positive regard is going to be just incredibly high um, for a lot of our students um, that are going to be returning to whatever format of learning that we're going to see in the fall. Um, so I, I think because things in behavior analysis can be compartmentalized, it's, it's very easy to critique that um, it seems like it's not important. And um, like I said, the good practitioners are going to consider those motivating operations. Um, a very mm -hmm. elementary understanding of behavior would tell you it's an antecedent to the behavior, the behavior itself, and then a consequence of the behavior. And, and good practitioners are going to consider those more distant antecedents, those motivational operations. What, what is it to be traumatized and how does that affect the value of certain reinforcement, like escape? Um, if a student is experiencing anxiety as a result of trauma, any behavior that's going to lead to an escape from some triggering event is going to be exponentially higher than any other competing behavior. Um, so I, I think it's important to have the understanding that there's a need in that motivational operation that we haven't met. There's a thirst that hasn't been quenched yet um, for that student in order to demonstrate a behavior that we want them to demonstrate and not one necessarily that they need to demonstrate in order to get that thing that they need, that escape that they need, the attention and connection with, a, with somebody else that they need. Um, obviously, we want them to get that in a way that's school appropriate, socially appropriate, you know, uh, and, and whatever arbitrary adult way <laughs> that we have it set out in our minds that they need to behave. Um, but, but I think good practitioners will consider that. And, and it is heartbreaking for me to hear, um, as a BCBA, um, stories of, of former clients and learners and students who have themselves been traumatized by ABA technologies from practitioners who didn't consider their consent, you know, and you see more and more stories of, um, individuals on the autism spectrum saying, you know, ABA is, is the worst thing ever. And I think that um, a lot of that is kind of the case example I gave you before of practitioners who don't consider client consent, who don't consider um, client experiences. Um, right. You know, um, and, and who don't have agency in what's happening to them. And, um, and a lot of times, because of the population that most BCBAs work with, it's, it's easy to breeze right past that because we're ignoring resistant behaviors as being, you know, uh, very clear signs of non-consent. <laughs> and we're just conceptualizing it as resistance to the treatment package. Um, so I, it, it's, it's, you know, 
it's understandable that that people see it that way, and it's understandable for my colleague um, Ryan to to joke with me that I'm just a robot, you know. And um, it's it's very understandable to see that way. Um, but it but it's also uh, you know heartbreaking at the same time that there there are enough negative experiences um, with what is otherwise a, a very good and comprehensive um, type of intervention. Um, that that's enough to to put a, uh, people off on it to say that you know ABA isn't enough to um, to assist people that are traumatized or that have trauma or that are experiencing some level of it or that have uh, adverse childhood experiences um, because my counter argument is is that um, of of course there's, there's a lot of good in in ABA to to help um, I don't think any one thing is is the end all be all treatment, right? So I'm, I'm not here to tell you that ABA is the cure for everything because that's just snake oil, right? Um, mm -hmm. I, I think that ABA technologies absolutely can be used with the general student population that is struggling to survive and cope in our current world state, which is, as I said, just an absolute adult nightmare. <laughs> um, it, it might not in itself be sufficient, and that's why I think it's it's good to step out of the the, the world of ABA and, and consider that that if we look at functions of behavior as just being escape or access to something that you know the, our students are going to need to access stability, which is hard to operationally define, and love and connectedness um, and respect. And uh, an agency, and so all these all these things that are you know not behavior analytical. Um, there is a behavior analytical way to get there, um, but I think it's it's okay to um, it's okay to realize and admit that it might not be um, everything that a kid needs, um, you know, given the current state of things. And I think it's worth mentioning that you know there's hardly ever just one treatment or one intervention that will solve a whole problem. All that said, in your opinion, how can districts best just who also hold a BCBA? Um, I, I think districts, I think, need to understand um, both of those packages, right? They need to understand the NAS practice model, and they need to understand the uh, the type of expertise that comes along with um, having that BCBA credential, and. Um, and I, and I guess I would sort of conceptualize it that um, that your school psychologist uh, needs to be doing things that are um, related to special education compliance, um, and they need to uh, they need to be able to do their mental health counseling, um, and they also need to be working with um, school staff to uh, support a whole school wide learning environment, right? Um, if you have a school psychologist who also has that additional BCBA certificate, then you have somebody who can help uh, with the higher level um, behavioral issues that you have either in your building or your district. And it's not to say that this one person is going to be pulled out to do, you know, um, Johnny's you know, running out of the building and into the street. Um, but having that that level of understanding then um, can also make that person a very good consultant into um, the sort of systems that that schools and districts have uh, operating 
um, that that person can uh, serve as a consultant to other school psychologists that, who are dealing with really difficult behaviors. So not necessarily being the one to have to solve the problem, but being a resource to their colleagues who then um, can promote a more effective change um, to their students. Um, if I had, you know, access to a BCBA or a psychologist who, who held that certificate um, in my in my previous job, like I, I might not have had uh, to go get that graduate training in that um, certificate because I, did, I just needed somebody to talk to, to to rethink about my case conceptualization about these really difficult um, behavioral issues. So I think a district can get the most out of their money by having this person um, still be able to do the, the traditional school psych things and, um, and a full application of the NAS practice model, uh, but then also serve as, um, as sort of a resident consultant to uh, the other school psychologists, you know, in their school or in their district um, who are having some, you know, significant issues with student behavior. You know, and whether that's, you know, small group, you know, consultation or case study, that kind of thing. Um, I, I think having them sequestered away in two middle schools with a bunch of kids is probably not the best use of that person. Um, but having that person serve as a resource to, uh, to other staff members who need it, I think would be really, really beneficial. Um, uh, you know, obviously, like I said, to the school psychologists, but but even specifically to those folks who are tagged as, you know, behavioral interventionists for the building, who oftentimes are, you know, paraprofessionals who um, who really could benefit from uh, some of that consultation from somebody to say, you know, yeah, you know, tough love is great. There's not a ton of evidence to support that it works, though. What if we tried something new <laughs> and then see what happens? Um, so I, I think I think that individual is a great um, consultative sort of resource. Um, I, I, I don't I don't think a good application is just having that person run around and put out the district's fires, um, but something more global and more preventive um, is, is probably the best use. Well, thank you so much for talking with me today. Yeah, thank you again for um, for scheduling the time to do it. But this is this has been a lot of fun. So um, thank you for for having me uh, be a part of the podcast and um, for having a chance to talk a little bit about the non-robotic side of applied behavior now. Thank you so much for listening to the Leitner side of things. If you have any feedback or topic ideas, let me know on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at S G E R A nine nine. See you at the next episode.